This is Winning Slowly, taking the long view on technology, religion, ethics, and art. And when I say the long view, do I ever mean the long view? I'm Chris Kreitcho. And I'm Stephen Caradini. And today we are going potentially the longest view that we've ever done on this show, I think. And I think so. We're going to keep developing our exercise in moral imagination to not predict the future because predicting the future is a poor exercise. Almost no one gets it right. (laughs) But to imagine a future that people can point towards and and aim at. And in particular, as we get farther and farther afield from the early 2000s, we get farther and farther into the Star Trek era. And Star Trek... Stephen is so excited. I am pretty excited. (laughs) My wife has introduced me to Star Trek over the course of our marriage, and I've really come to enjoy it quite a bit. But even before I actually watched Star Trek, I was aware that many of the technologies that we have now are implicitly or even explicitly a result of people Mm -hmm. saying, I'm going to make one of those. Famously, Mm -hmm. the iPhone has been credited and then discredited and credited and discredited as being a attempt at a tricorder and you can look up the long debate about that uh, but there are lots of other things too you can hear people every now and then say like you know like the computer on star trek or like the starships on star trek or like the yeah, x on star trek there's just a lot of star trek that presents a large amount of technological innovation as totally pedestrian They don't focus on the technology hardly at all in Star Trek. They just happen to have it around. This also makes for some wonderful moments when they have to fix something engineering-wise and they just start (laughs) spouting random words that are lovingly Trek-no-babble. Trek-no-babble. That's a terrible portmanteau. Well, I think Trek-no-babble actually came first and then Tech-no-babble was (laughs) was backfilled because they've been making stuff up since the 60s. It's they really have. <laughs> so that's the sort of thing we're going to be doing. We're going to be talking about the far future, about what would it look like if we, as a group of people here in the year 2019, all started working towards a potential future that was non-technologically captive. So we expanded yeah. on what that means in the previous episode. So if you're listening to this one without the previous episode, please go back and listen to that one so that we don't have to have <laughs> the halting and difficult conversation that we had last time. So, uh, Chris, what do you think 80 years from now would be like if a sufficiently large group of people started doing non-technologically captive things? Yeah, this is a really interesting and very challenging question i've been mulling on this for the last couple weeks since we recorded the last episode it's the year 2100 it is the year technically it is the year 2099 that's right that's right (laughs) 
we're we're about to turn another century and everyone's remembering the great and terrible crisis that wasn't in 2000 because of the heroic work of many software engineers pulling many, many long late nights. And everyone's grateful that we got through the almost catastrophe of 2038 when the Unix time <laughs> epic rolled over and hit the, uh. Uh, the 32-bit integer rollover. And everyone's grateful that there's nothing like this coming in 2100 none of none of that's coming so now that we'll all be 64 bit by then oh yes yes <laughs> one hopes but then there are banks Stephen. that's all and... hey uh, that's fair that's fair <laughs> yeah the banks still won't let me put in any longer than an eight or 12 character password so uh, yeah, maybe I'm... by the year 2099 the bank will let me put in a 16 character <laughs> password you're you're Crazy shooting for the talk. moon there shooting real high still yeah. only ASCII though <laughs> <laughs> That's about as about as nerdy a comment as I could probably oh make on this show. No, Let's there's see more. If, there's more. There's so much more. <laughs> Would you like, dear listeners, to hear about the intricacies of representing human language with Unicode? I'm not going there. Oh but I gosh. could. It's very interesting. But we may not need to do that by 2099 <laughs> because we may just all be using interface to interface like magical wizard portals by that point. I certainly point. hope not. That That is... I think one of the things that makes imagining something fully a lifetime out difficult, in particular, imagining something fully a lifetime out on a very different trajectory mm. difficult, mm. is that it is hard to imagine something this far out anyway. If you think back 80 years ago, we're looking at 1949. It was four years after the end, did I do that math right? I think I did that math right. I did uh, that math. 80, wrong. yeah. No, 51, 19, 70. Yeah, you did it wrong. It's 39. It's 39. It was the year that World War I was starting. Yeah. Depending on how you want to count it. If you want to count from the beginning of Japan's invasion of China, you're six years later, whatever. But it's the beginning of the European theater of World War II at, at a minimum. Indeed. The world has changed a lot. Not really years. if you're Alan Jacobs. It was already <laughs> over by then. <laughs> yes. I, that is the interesting thing I was It's been to good listening. At, Thanks for listening. <laughs> Thanks Bye. For listening, See you next week. <laughs> it's all going to be the same. Fancier gadgets, but all the same. Uh, that is the interesting bit to get at, though, right? Is that imagining a world even as different merely in technological terms while still in a technocratic society. There are ways in which the visions of the future that were being proffered then are not unlike where we've ended up today. We have fewer flying cars and more social networks perhaps than they imagined, but... Although their their estimation of technologies of communication was not that far wrong. Right. Right. And most of the reasons we don't have flying cars, I think, mostly have to do with the fact that they're not actually all that useful compared to regular cars. We could build them, but uh, well, the cost could, trade-offs are... We could argue about that, <laughs> but that's a whole other different episode, and that d- defeats the purpose of what we're doing now. The overall thing you're trying to say is that 1939 to now is completely different, and so thinking about now to 2099 yes. is as hard as it imagining is. 2019 from 1939. I summarized that because otherwise I was going to argue with you the whole episode. So. <laughs> we can imagine things we might have done 
by then. Yeah. We, we may actually have a viable functioning colony on Mars. And yes, dear listeners, since the last time we spoke, I did buy and have read the first approximately one eighth of Kim Stanley Robinson's Red Mars, and I'm enjoying it. And it's interesting, and it's very much not a non-technocratic vision of the future, but it is, right out the gate, people arguing about, can we start over? Do we have to replicate all the mistakes that we've made on Earth? You put 100 people on a spaceship for nine months as part of getting to Mars, and... Along the way, they do, spoilers for the first eighth of the book, start arguing about whether they actually have to listen to mission control, or at the end of the day, they're kind of on their own and Houston can't stop them. Maybe we should try something. And I think there's a genius to that in terms of Robinson's depiction, because I think some of the places where people may be most tempted both to lean into and most tempted to try not being technocrats, technologically captive, as you said, Mm -hmm. are in places like that, experiments like that. And it's interesting to consider that because starting a new outpost of human civilization on Mars is perhaps the most technologically mediated thing you can possibly imagine us doing. You have every part of your existence dependent on technology, on in many cases, technologies we haven't invented yet that we would have to invent to make yeah. this viable. Radiation shields. Right. How, how do we account for the ways that childbirth and, for that matter, childbearing prior to childbirth might be really different when you're living in approximately one-third Earth gravity and all sorts of interesting things that require technological solutions to be possible? And yet, as we talked about last time, there are ways in which you might say... We're going to have technology and all the things that make a Martian city possible and in no more whatsoever. Yeah, and I I think that it's totally possible. There's actually this really interesting episode of a podcast that I listened to recently. It's called Flash Forward. It's It's about space crime because there was a blurb in the news recently about potentially the world's first crime that occurred in outer space. And, of course, it was like a... contested potential identity theft which is like the least exciting thing that could possibly ever have happened as our first space crime in terms of like a dramatic representation of this but which is about the most human thing it's literally the most human thing possible yeah but they were expanding on the future and thinking about what would crime look like out there and how would justice work and seems like it'd be difficult to have uh certain types of justice that we have here on earth. If you only have 20 people in general out there, (laughs) like you can't just build a prison for a person. It seems like a waste of resources and also like complicated ethically and stuff like that. (laughs) So also uh, like complicated. That is an excellent summary. uh, Also like complicated. Complicately. So on the one hand, I think it's a, it's a great thought experiment to, think okay there's going to be some things we do here on earth that are just not even possible out there Mm -hmm. so we would have to come up with something new on the other hand it's a little too easy to try to think about the out there for the future because like you just get to make it up like you don't have to take into account (laughs) like history and geography and like those guys over there and stuff like that and so i think it is hard to think about 2099 but i think it's also really valuable because what i would think about in 2099 is okay we've jumped to the point where our children are elderly yes 
and they're looking back at the world that they were helping create. Mm-hmm. And so thinking about the nature of what would people who have learned from us about how to be non-technologically captive, where would they go with it? And right. so I think that last time we talked a lot about economy. I think economy is good, and I think economy is always going to be in flux. But I think that once you get past about 50 years, you start to have ways that the earth itself, if not technologically continued to be developed slash ruined, depending on how you extremize or not your various technological uses of the earth, there would be ways that the earth would start to potentially revert back like the ph of the ocean might go back down if we mm-hmm. in the intervening 80 years figured out how to detrash the ocean right various places that were abandoned for not being sustained uses of agriculture would probably return to their original state so places that have been deforested might actually have been reforested in 80 right. years so there's some ways that if we just don't get worse and optimistically went backwards on some of these worst things, there would be natural rebounds. There wouldn't just be what have humans done. Like the earth itself could do some things on its own. And so I think that's a valuable way to think about it is that like on the scale that we're thinking about, we're not just thinking about humans anymore. We're thinking about how does the earth respond Mm -hmm. 80 years from now? How do animal populations respond 80 years from now? Because without technology diminishing them and perhaps even in helping them, mm-hmm. a lot of different things could happen. And once you have biodiversity of plants and animals, then you start having a whole lot of different things happen. You have lots of different ways that cities could then have various types of eco structures right. that are not necessarily big boxes on grids. You could have a lot <laughs> right. of of interweaving of natural earth mm-hmm. and and animal life and plant life with people's habitations. And right. that's without depending on how technology could develop for batteries and electricity and stuff like that. Mm-hmm. But y- if you just left the earth alone, it would go and do earth stuff. <laughs> it would earth. <laughs> go and do earth stuff if we didn't already have the title for this episode chosen i think that would be it yeah yeah we can subtitle it we can subtitle it go and do earth stuff and so i think that's valuable because not only do we say humans may have a better relationship to each other and to technology but like we would to the earth too what's up jake mm-hmm. <laughs> yeah and i think there are other related notes there that you can see the first hints of in certain places that we've had good thinkers pointing us toward for a long time. So Ivan Illich has his famous work, Tools for Conviviality. And one of his arguments is about the automobile and the fact that the automobile, unlike a bicycle, is not a tool for conviviality. And what he means by this is that it puts things on a scale that is beyond the human, that a bicycle is a multiplier of the human. And a an automobile is doing something entirely different. A, a bicycle translates your abilities directly into motion in a way that an automobile does not. An automobile is generating its energy in a wholly different way than a bicycle does. And this has implications for 
the way your cities get built and Indeed. how you distribute things like grocery stores or markets or in fact the very idea that you end up with grocery stores instead of local markets is in many ways a function of the automobile rather than the bicycle or the human leg, as the case may be. And in places that have, whether they got it from Illich or not, listened to this message and embraced walking and bicycling as sort of the limits of the structures of their city. One thinks especially of Denmark or Amsterdam. These kinds of cities end up with different structures to them, with different geographies internal to them because of those limitations that they've embraced. And as you see American cities, which are the ones with which we're more familiar, start to lean into those kinds of things, you see shifts, little bits here and there starting yeah. to happen even today. And it's along the same lines you were just articulating. Mm -hmm. I can imagine cities that have embraced that, that have embraced their integration with where they get all their food from that isn't just let's ship in via truck and train enormous amounts of food from outside. You yep. actually end up with much more sprawl in certain ways, yeah, but just sprawl that's that's not <laughs> just ship it. It's <laughs> it's not sprawl in the way that we think of suburban and urban sprawl today. No. Nope. It's sprawl because cities have leaned into not needing everything to be just giant towers, and then the food comes from somewhere else and you don't think about it. But rather, the food comes from nearby, and I can participate in the growth of the things I eat. And gardens and farms are not such wildly distinct things that homeowners associations tell you that you have to hide your garden lest your neighbors be worried about it. And certainly, no, you may not have chickens, even if all your neighbors think they have chickens. And I'll put some links to things in the show notes where this is relevant in this town I live in. There was a funny thing where a homeowners association was all, no, you can't have chickens. People hate chickens. And everybody who lived in the neighborhood said, chickens seem great. We don't mind if there are chickens in the neighborhood. And the HOA was like, I think by oh. HOA, you mean you don't like chickens person right, writing yes. this missive. <laughs> exactly. And the homeowners association had to kind of change their mind because everyone who owned a home in the association said, nah, we're you can leave that rule in there if you won't overturn it, but we're not going to report anybody for chickens because yeah. we all have chickens now. There's a step in the right direction there. And I think we can imagine cities that have leaned into that, where cities have leaned into a more convivial life. And convivial not only amongst humans, but between humans and the environment of which mm -hmm. we are a part. Sometimes mm -hmm. we talk as though it's humans and the environment as separate things. But no, we're integrally connected with the world in which we live, inextricably dependent on it. And it's easy to imagine, though it's hard to get to, a world in which we've actually embraced that, in which cities have embraced that and have spread themselves out and have thought of ways that make even towers be arcologies, as it were. Sure. And I think there are ways forward in this in that, again, if we stopped doing certain things that devastate the climate, mm -hmm. then a bounce back towards certain types of, of water distribution over various types of land would result in even more places that are actually habitable in mm -hmm. the sense of 
it has enough water and arable land to sustain some sort of space. Now, obviously, all water needs to be uh, sustainably managed. I live in Phoenix. <laughs> all land needs to be sustainably managed. Chris lives in Colorado, where eastern Colorado is uh, it's not sustainably managed. <laughs> <laughs> Just put it nicely. And so this is not to say that we can, in the same way that we have done before, expand, but right. that if we did have some places where now things are totally uh, able to support land and able to support people on the land, then you could have smaller cities. You could have smaller mm -hmm. groups of people that live in meaningful ways that do what they want to do to tap in our economy uh, conversation, partially because their boundaries of what they want to do are shifted. Mm -hmm. They don't have the same sorts of uh, I don't even know what we would call it. Just well, I'll call it expansive vocational imagination. <laughs> I'll call it that. Which is not to say that that's directly bad, but as Chris just mentioned, it's essentially a function of a totally technologically motivated milieu where every job has been atomized. Right. But... It's entirely possible that there would be smaller numbers – there would be larger numbers of smaller cities or smaller mm -hmm. groups of people or whatever they they tend to call right. themselves at that time. And so I think that's a totally reasonable thing. And I also think that if we do have something like that, then one of the ways that you could non – technologically focused approach communication is right now communication is an end. It is not a means to an end. It is in insofar as Twitter exists only to <laughs> propagate Twitter and Facebook right. exists only to propagate Facebook. I can imagine other sorts of communication technologies that are more like the phone company the old school Alexander Bell type phone company where that was such a useful and meaningful and large scale enterprise that it literally got utilitized. Like the <laughs> United States <laughs> said, this is too important to actually have non-neutral parties running it, or at least neutralized parties running it. And right. so we're going to essentially force you to be structured in a particular way. So I can imagine that we would have more types of communication technologies that are structured in that way if there was not the same type of massive profit motive, if there was not the same sort of scale-generating approach to business in general, which isn't to say that there wouldn't be business because that's <laughs> part of what people do. But I think it would be scaled a lot differently, and a lot of these things would be localized and would be approached in a way that looks very different. So this is like Chris and I's favorite thing, local loop unbundling, which is a tiny, <laughs> tiny version of of something like this. Uh, there's an episode that you can go and listen to Chris talk about at length. Uh, we'll <laughs> link it in the show notes. But there's a lot of ways that if you think about – the lack of scale mm -hmm. with the idea that technologies 
at a runaway level, which I would call many of our technologies at runaway yeah. speed right now. Technologies at runaway scale push runaway change and runaway growth and runaway size. And so I think that if we decided to avoid that, then not only would we have a different type of scale, we would have a different type of outcomes of some of the support structures for that scale. Right. Some of what you were just saying had me thinking kind of running off in a related but distinct direction on the kinds of relationships we would have to our technologies. One of the things that those runaway technologies tend to encourage and wherein they tend to create virtuous or vicious, depending on which part of the party you're in, virtuous for the business outcomes, perhaps vicious for literally everything else, is consumerism and the need for the new, the need for the new, the need for the new, the need for the thing not to be repairable and the need for the thing to be an item with which you have a relationship merely as a consumer of it, not as a possessor and maintainer and modifier of a it. A steward. So, yeah. Stephen knows that I am sympathetic in many ways to the reasons that some of our computing devices have become less repairable over time. I'm that's, not... That's true. He is I'm sympathetic not, to some yeah. of those reasons. Spoiler alert, I am not. Stephen has zero sympathy for this. What I will say, though, is that while there are trade-offs there, I think a genuinely non-technologically captured frame of these things can bend the curve, to use the language from a technology community I've been a part of. The Rust programming language community likes to look at problems that many people have assumed are inescapably opposed to one another mm. and say, yeah. can we change the course here? Can we come at this from a new direction such that we can actually get the goods that all of us are aiming at here by just coming at it from a whole new direction that people haven't necessarily tried before? And so to that end... I would love it if our computing devices of whatever sorts were more repairable. And if our cars were, well, maybe if we just stopped using cars. No, I don't actually quite mean that. But We definitely will have a different relationship to transportation yes. at all. Right. But that for all of these kinds of things, our norm went back more in the direction of when I acquire this thing or when I create this thing, and better if it be the latter in many ways, that my assumption is that I have the ability to work on and with it, that it not be a thing that is a black box to me that only a specialist can deal with, mm -hmm. but that it is something I can, if I so choose, grow to have the expertise to deal with myself. And right. not all of us will always choose that. And I think that is also okay, yeah. but that we should have that as always one of the considerations in mind. So, and I'm probably going to talk about this much more at length elsewhere right now, but I've been mulling for the last two or three weeks on a project that I'm working on and whether and how this project, which is a research writing application, we'll link you to the details if you care, whether and how to make that open source because there are competing and standing in tension with each other challenges about open sourcing projects, which are also commercial, that also intend to make money someday. And 
I am dissatisfied deeply with all the solutions we have come up with for these. But I think if we're thinking about these things over the next 80 years, that 80 years from now we'll at least have some darn good answers. And maybe in some yeah. small, tiny way, the experiments that I think I'm going to do in this direction can be some tiny part of that conversation yeah. and how things move over the next 80 years. Because I want it to be the case that if something isn't working right for this piece of software, somebody can go do all the reasons that whatever his many other follies and failings Richard Stallman rightly identified decades and decades ago <laughs> that you should be able to go fix your own dang printer yeah. if the software doesn't work right. And you should be able yeah. to do that with your John Deere tractor, as we've talked about in previous yeah. episodes. And yeah. in the case of this app that I'm building, that if something isn't working quite right, you could go extend it and fix it. There are hard, hard realities around the economics of these things, which are why this is a difficult thing that I'm still thinking through how best to accomplish while still being able to make a business. But but in 80 years, we should have sorted through some of these if indeed we get yes, in a yes. non-technocratic frame. Yes, and I think that to some extent, the nature of de-escalating the emphasis on economy, which was what we talked about mm -hmm. last time, not making the economy its own end, which right. to a lot of degrees it is literally its mm -hmm. own end at this point. Not making the economy its own end means that money is of less value, like not empirically in that it, it has inflationary <laughs> We're not talking about value, deflation but, here in inflation, yeah. yeah. Uh, but that it is not the primary mover of the society. And I know that that is probably that's the, really radical. The weirdest thing we've said in these whole two episodes <laughs> is that money may not be the primary mover of the society. But I think that's if we move in this direction, it would be realistic to think about that. In that right. there would be can... other types of capital, relational capital and social capital and. I actually really don't like thinking about... I was about, about to say, I'm increasingly hostile to I the use of like, capital to describe relational and political and all those other kinds I, of I don't like things. it, but in the, this specific context, <laughs> right. it's, it's a parallelism. Yes. Um, there's, there's ways of trading and there's ways of being that prioritize other types of relationships as primary mm -hmm. for bartering, essentially, for right. doing transactions. Yeah. And in the context of something like this software program, we can imagine a world in which we don't have to trade between the source being open and people being able to contribute to it and people thinking it's good to make sure that the main author of a given thing is right. rightly and justly remunerated for their efforts. And we can also conceive that the the author of such a piece of software might be able then to have mechanisms to say, hey, here's here's like some actual compensation for your labor in making right. this thing better, right. that it doesn't have to be a zero-sum game there. Right. And I think also that we've been dancing this fine line between saying like there will be an economy of some variety. Mm -hmm. it, it. I mean, ever since the garden, there's essentially <laughs> been an economy right. of some variety, a transaction, right. even in the first humans whose transactions were with God and some of them were good and some of them <laughs> were bounce checks apparently. So I mean, this it, analogy's not working for me. <laughs> I'm, I'm actually really confident in that analogy. I think it's fine. God did uh... not accept the offering. That's literally what happens when you bounce a check. They don't accept the check. Anyway, theological 
absurdity aside. <laughs> Chris, Chris is going to feel bad about that for a long time, but I'm not, and you can put me on the record. I, I have um, registered my discontent. Yes. But all that aside, there will be an economy of some sort, and there will be communication of some sort, and there will even be cities of various sizes because mm-hmm. in various places there's going to be more ability of the land, even in a sustainably – thinking about ecological intertwining sort of way, mm-hmm. there's going to be some places that are a lot more likely to do that at hey, a sustainable level. Hey, the East level. Coast is just enormously more fruitful in the literal sense of the word fruitful yeah. than our, say... Antarctica, where the largest or, civilization that we have is like 30 people. Like, that's right. just a, that's a <laughs> I was thinking reality. Arizona, but, you know. <laughs> well, actually, well, that's why there's only three cities in Arizona, and one of them right. is on the confluence of two rivers. So And water rights are really complicated. Well, actually... I wish they were a little more complicated in Arizona. It's, <laughs> it's in California that they're complicated. But uh, yes, the the point is not to say that none of this stuff will exist. There are things that won't exist, but there also will still be human nature. There's going to be basic human things, and mm-hmm. people are still going to do bad things, unfortunately. Yes. This is not a utopia, and no matter how many structures you put into place, people are always going to attempt to break them. Someone's going to try to steal Chris's software for themselves. That's just a thing that's going to happen. Right. Okay, kids, you remember how I said at the beginning that this was going to be a long view? Well, it's also turning out to be a long episode. A long episode. Like double the length of our normal episodes. So we are cutting the episode in half here so that it doesn't destroy your ability to actually listen to the episode all at once. Thus, normal outro things now. The song at the beginning of the episode was On Reflection by Message to Bears. Thank you for letting us use the song. We used it with permission. Also, Message to Bears, pretty rad. That's a fantastic it's name. It's really great. It's really great. Thanks, as always, to our sponsors. Nathaniel Blaney, you are at that level where we shout you out every month. Other person I have in mind, you ask not to be named on the show ever under any circumstances, but I'm thinking about you right now. That's right. We're not, we're not naming you <laughs> under any circumstances. We're just thinking, thinking about, about, you about you under so thank certain you. Circumstances. And for everyone in between, thank you for sponsoring the show. Yes. You can sponsor the show at patreon.com slash winning slowly or cash.me slash dollar sign winning slowly. Yep. Hello at winningslowly.org, at winning slowly, at Scaradini, Facebook, flagging us on the street. You can reach us yeah, all those if ways. You see us on the street and flag us down. That would be pretty awesome. We would really like that, actually. That goes along nicely with this episode. And as always, It'll go on even better with the next episode. Though, even just you better, wait. just you wait. <laughs> oh man, oh man. As always, <laughs> thank you for, for listening. listening. Uh, dear listeners, I don't agree. <laughs> We know, we know, Stephen, we know. We had two whole episodes at the beginning of the season about that. I I just bring back the themes. I'm just that guy. Places roughly the size of my left hand. (laughs) I'm not sure how our Danish listeners will take that, but... Um, Your country is smaller than almost every American state. (laughs) That's my my argument here. You're bigger than Rhode Island. (laughs) The, The... the point, however, is it was that not a, s- a derogatory claim. I was just <laughs> right. pointing out. I was, I was, I was enhancing Chris's thoughts with a joke <laughs> in a deadpan mode, and Chris got it stalled. Failed.
because I got because yeah. yeah yeah anyway it's one of those days everybody humor how does it even work look at this blooper it's so great 